Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we talk with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community. Today, we have Katrina Webb on. She's a good friend. Uh, we've been friends for a long time. She's a three-time gold medalist, a three-time Paralympian, three gold, three silver, one bronze, broke a Paralympic, me- uh, Paralympic record in Athens in the 400 meters, and also has, I mean, we'll talk about some of this other stuff, but she is coming to us from Australia. So it is five o'clock mountain time here. It is 1030 in the morning in Adelaide, Australia. So 17 and a half hours different. Uh, Katrina, I I actually, I have to, I had this quote that I've been quoting Charles Schultz for the longest time, something, don't worry about the world ending, it's already tomorrow in Australia. And then I, I went and researched it a little bit, and it actually wasn't Charles Schultz who did it, not not the guy from Peanuts, from, but anyway, it's still, it's it's already tomorrow, the, the, the thought still counts. It's already tomorrow in Australia. Thank you and welcome and thank you for joining us. Oh, so wonderful. And yes, the, yeah, your, your rest of your day will happen. Um, it's going to be a good day, let me tell you that. But uh, I know it's still fascinating. I was chatting to one of my son's friends yesterday in the car and they've just visited America and he was still, he was talking to me. His highlight was the fact that when they flew over there, they got there the day that they left. And then when they come home, they lost two days and he was, he just thought that was fascinating. So yeah, it's so wonderful that we can connect though and uh, be live together um, from other sides of the world. It really is. And and talking just to one more point on that, when I left Sydney after the games in 2000, we left on Halloween and we landed on Halloween. So the 31st of, of October. <laughs> Yay, winning. Did you go trick-or-treating after that then? <laughs> I did. And I was so european centric i think so many of our competitions had all already been had always been in europe and so i came home and i thought okay well i'll go out and i'll stay up until midnight and then i'll sleep the next day and everything will be fine and i'll be over the jet lag and i slept until like two o'clock in the afternoon (laughs) because i hadn't realized i was going the other way i wasn't going west i was going east and i was thoroughly confused so anyway Uh, That's the way it works. <laughs> it's it's funny because you and I connected on the Paralympic side, but you were a tremendous athlete before you realized that you could actually be in the Paralympics. And I mean, you were on effectively like the national team for netball. So first of all, can you describe what netball is? Because it because we as Americans don't really understand what netball is. But then we'll get into into some of how that actually happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is a very different story, actually, mine. And uh, I did come through, you know, lots of different sports growing up. Um, my dad was a good athlete. In fact, he played Australian rules football at a high level. And my mum's family were very good athletes. In fact, one of my cousins, a three-time Olympic basketballer. And so sport wasn't um, an option for us. It was compulsory. Um, I have a brother and sister. So we, we got to do and try lots of different sports. And I do love, did love that about my upbringing. Um, my parents were always happy to drive us to and, and give us an opportunity to try as many different sports as we, as we like to find something that worked for us. And yeah, I found netball. Um, so netball is a sport played mainly by the Commonwealth countries and it's um it's a ball sport um there's seven people on the court at a time it's it's not similar to basketball but I suppose that's the closest sport you'd probably say um can you you can relate to that you can't bounce the ball you have certain areas that you can go into and positions um, but at the end of the day you've got to pass the ball and get the ball in the ring but there's no backboard so um yeah it's a team sport mainly played by women men do play it as well but in Australia it is the most popular sport um, and as I said played across the Commonwealth and Australia did win the gold medal at the Commonwealth Games last year uh, so we're very competitive and um, and and I was very good at it I, I made state teams I I made a national squad for my under 17 age group I was encouraged to apply for a scholarship so back in 1994 
Um, someone said to me, look, you, you're a very good netballer. If you apply for a scholarship, you can go live in Canberra at the our National Training Centre. So that's called the Australian Institute of Sport. And I did that and I won it. So in 1995, I moved to Canberra. I you know, never lived out of home. I did the 17-hour drive, whatever it is, as we do across Australia, I took my car across and I lived there for the year, all expenses paid. There was 11 other netballers and we were in this fantastic facility. You know, back then the AIS, as it's known, was one of the best facilities in the world. And I couldn't believe my luck, you know, all that hard work I'd put in. And here I was at the Australian Institute of Sport as a young netballer, hoping to make it to the, you know, to the national Australian team level. Um, but I definitely was on my journey um, Things didn't go to plan, as I imagined, though. Um, and But I did. I, I got to a very successful place um, as a able-bodied netballer, um, and that's where things changed for me along my Paralympic journey. How did that work? So it was, it was during a testing, you know, testing session that they figured out that you had cerebral palsy? Sort of. Um, if I just give you a little bit of background. So when I was three, uh, my parents noticed that I was limping and it wasn't going away. And when I've spoken to my mum, she noticed some other things as well. But as a baby, I did everything at the normal developmental milestones. I walked at 14 months. Um, and they say if a baby hasn't walked before 18 months, then, you know, then there's nothing really wrong with their development. So things for me were going well. Um, and when I was, I have a sister that's 14 months older. So mum and dad could, I suppose, check that, um, you know, they knew what, what was, um, my sister doesn't have a disability. So they could kind of compare my progress to her. And they noticed that I was limping when I got tired. And so they just went to their local doctor and said, look, can we get this checked out? And so back when this was diagnosed, which was 1980, I went to saw a specialist and he did tell my parents that I'd suffered a very mild injury to my brain in utero. And from age three until I stopped growing, I had to have treatment. So um, the injury was on the left side of my brain. So the right side of my body was affected. Um, they never used the term cerebral palsy, though. So in fact, what I had was cerebral palsy, but they didn't label it. They just said to my parents, look, this has happened in utero. Um, it's very mild. And with this treatment, she'll be okay. And so I would see a specialist every year. I had to wear a night plaster to bed, which is um, you know a little plaster that sits across with Velcro and it kept my right ankle at 90 degrees at night. So as I grew, my calf muscle didn't tighten. And I had to wear that for quite a significant amount of time. You know, I'm just under six foot. So until I stopped growing was in fact three and a half thousand nights, I calculated that I had to wear that night plaster. Um, and I would vi visit a physio a couple of times a year and they'd, you know, they'd watch my growth and my progress and, um, and just see how I was going. I can always remember as a young kid, they couldn't believe how well I was doing. Um, they, you know, my ability to be able to function and to be competitive in sport and schoolwork. I always got, you know, A plus grades from the medical um, team when I went to visit. However, for me as a young kid, I... I didn't like the fact that I had to do any of that and I can't. So if this is my right toes, I can't actually move them. I really can't move them at all. I can move them a tiny little bit, but I can't do much with my toes at all. I can't um, point my right toes. I can't do a calf raise. So my right calf developed to be thinner. Um, so my whole right side of my body is affected. But And growing up as a young kid, I knew I was different. I knew I couldn't do things and I knew I had to wear that plaster to bed and I didn't like it. Um, and because it's hard for people to see my difference, you know, straight away, um, I remember as a young five-year-old coming home to my parents just saying, can we just not tell anybody that there's something different about me? Can we keep it our family secret? And if a friend comes to stay, can I just not have to wear that plaster? Because that's really embarrassing. And, and my parents said yes. And so then I went, you know, I was so relieved I can remember being a young kid just going, well, I just want to be like everybody else. And I was so relieved when they said, yes, we'll just keep it, you know, a secret within our family that I just set about proving to everybody that I was capable and I was good enough. So I learned how to work extremely hard, do more than others. And I do know after speaking to quite a few people, and I don't know if you relate to this too, Chris, that when, you, when you're trying, when you have a difference and you don't want people to know it about you, you then overplay and you work even harder to prove your capability. I mean, look at the poster behind you. You, you, you tried to climb a mountain, right? So we're trying, I would love to study this more. 
about this overplaying of that we are capable. And so I did this from age five and, you know, that got me to the AIS. So I got to the AIS as a full able-bodied athlete having, um, you know, cerebral palsy that I didn't know was called cerebral palsy that I worked very hard with to get there. And so when I was at the AIS as a netballer and walking around, it was actually the head athletic coach who was running a program and training Paralympic athletes or para-athletes to go to their first Paralympic Games. And he happened to walk behind me on one particular day. And because he knows what to look for and his eyes are trained to see people like me, there was no talent search back then either. We were kind of found by, by chance or um, can you imagine when he started walking behind me, he couldn't stop, he couldn't stop following me. He just kept following me everywhere. Um, and then he asked me a few questions. Then we did a few tests and then it was confirmed, um, not confirmed, like it was already there. Nothing changed. I suppose it was labeled as cerebral palsy. And having that label, as you know, cerebral palsy is in the Paralympic Games, and that's where the opportunity for me that I didn't even know exist was, was opened up. The thing didn't change, but the direction changed, right? So was there any thought for you, even though they diagnosed this and said, well, this is cerebral palsy, so they gave it a name, but was there any thought for you to say, well, can I continue to play netball? I've can, I've earned my way in here. You've just called me something different. How does, how does that work? Cause it's not immediately that, that they diagnose it. And then you say, okay, I'm going to go to the Paralympics. This was, you put your heart and soul into yeah, your absolutely. life as an athlete. Absolutely. There was a few other extra things that happened in that year. So I, you know, I, I get to the AIS, I'm 17. I really excited. The first thing that happened is I got a significant knee injury on my right side, which is my cerebral palsy side. I had never been injured before and the increased court time and a lot of, you know, jumping up and down my right side. In fact, my right patellar tendon, I lost a third of my patellar tendon in that period of time, just from that increased court time. So I, I was sidelined for 10 weeks, which was, which sucked. Um, I'd never been injured before. And, and that was really difficult. So I had as much therapy as I could. I was in the best place to be because there was all this great therapy to try and get me better. I got better. And the second thing that happened then was that I was able to be picked for the team because I wasn't injured, but then I didn't get picked for the team. And not because I was injured, but because I wasn't good enough. And that bit was difficult because in my own head as a young kid growing up, you know, I, I was kind of saying to myself, but you got to prove to people that you're good enough. You know, you got to work really hard to prove to people that you're good enough. And then to have the coach of the team not pick me and what she was saying was I wasn't good enough, which was the truth, you know, to get to that next level, to be an Australian netballer, to go to a Commonwealth Games, I had to be um, 100% physically able and I, I could never be. Um, and that was really challenging, Chris. I, I found that really difficult. You know, I just turned 18. I'm still trying to explore who I am as a young woman. I'm trying to hide something I don't like about myself. Um, I'm working. I was the hardest worker in the team because that was my only tool. And it didn't work anymore. So that that happened. And the third thing that happened was that finding out that I had cerebral palsy and that discovery. And so those three things all came together. You know, when I look back on it now, you know, it was the perfect timing for it all to come together together because it gave me more of an opportunity to say, well, if I keep going down the netball path, it's it's going to be difficult. Um, this is as far as I'm going to get. I could have come home to my own city and played at a state-based level. And, but that for me, I, I, I don't want to be limited. Like I, you know, one of my important values is around excellence and being the best I can be. And I didn't want to limit myself. And so, and so it was a really, it was a really difficult decision. Um, my netball career wasn't looking great with an injury and not being, getting picked for the team. The difficult decision for me was actually, um, and, and I suppose when that Paralympic opportunity came up, um, I already knew my netball career was looking, you know, was was not looking great. And so when Chris Nunn, who was the actual coach, you know, came up to me and he said to me, Katrina, you know, guess what? It is cerebral palsy. Um, and when he did tell me that news, to see his excitement, um, and I often describe it as he came up to me and said, oh, you know, Katrina, what you've got is cerebral palsy. Like he had his hands rubbing together like it was the best moment in his life because as a head coach, he knew that, you know, I could be recruited and that could be a, a pathway for me. And when I first heard him say that, um, 
I wasn't excited and pumped up like he was um, because when he said, you know, that I have cerebral palsy in a year's time, if I get classified and I qualify, then I could join them to go to the Atlanta Paralympic Games. When he said that, I thought, gee, people will know that if I'm a Paralympian, people know there's something different about me. And I didn't know how to deal with that. And I didn't like that part of myself. So it really triggered a lot of fear and shame and uncertainty. But let me tell you, this coach, the way he described the Paralympics to me, the fire in his belly, his authentic joy. And I must say, he's been the only person in my career to date that has come up to me and wanted me a part of his team because I have cerebral palsy. The fire in his belly, that gift that he passed to me, I just thought there's something special here and I need to explore it. And so to help me make the decision to go to the Paralympic Games, because it was, Chris, it was a big decision. This was my dream. I was an able-bodied netballer, and then things didn't go to plan. There was a big challenge and change there. And then quite a quite a um, very different turn to go to a Paralympic Games in a year. Chris said to me, don't make this decision lightly. Make sure you go and talk to somebody about it and make the right decision for you. And he said, why don't you go and speak to the sports psychologist? And I said, what a great, what a great suggestion, because I'd had a sports psychologist in my team since I was 14. I saw psychologists as people that could help me make great mental decisions that really help power my mental performance. So I didn't even think twice about <laughs> seeing the psychologist. And it was in that meeting with a psychologist when we actually took the time to think about my thinking and looked at all my positive thoughts and all my negative and all the opportunities and all the, you know, the challenges that it was really clear to me that, you know, I was destined, the Paralympics was absolutely where I needed to be. And can I say the best decision, you know, I've I made and, and changed the, you know, trajectory of my life. Which all happened when you were 18 years old. You were so, you were so young, you hadn't really defined who you were. You, you had a picture of who you wanted to be, which was the netballer picture. But then not only did you get the diagnosis, you talked to the psychologist, and then you had to switch sports, though, because there's no netball in the Paralympics. So everything you'd built towards, then obviously you acquired a variety of skills, but it, you had to switch. And, and how did you decide that you were going to do track or track and field, right? Because you did long jump as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. It, it was a massive year. I look back on my 18-year-old self now and go, wow, like not only did you change sports, you changed from able-bodied sport to para-sport and you went from being a team athlete to an individual athlete and um, and you did it all on a world stage. You know, I, I am in awe of my 18-year-old self and the skills I had to, to do that with the people around me, which was excellent. But the Chris Nunn was an athletics coach. So, of course, when he finds me, he wants me to go to his sport. So that was the first thing. And, Chris, you know how incredibly powerful and strong the, the athletics um, sport is in the Paralympic movement. There was a lot of opportunities for me as a woman with cerebral palsy and with my classification, which end up being T or F38, um, for me to be a swimmer wouldn't work. I know the wheelchair basketball team had heard about me and I remember people sort of mentioning she'd be fantastic because I could throw really well. I, you know, I was a great ball sport athlete. And uh, um, But the one thing people might not know that as an Australian netball, you know, squad at the AIS, the AIS netball program, we actually had an athletic coach and we did running and track training with this athletic coach two or three times a week um, and so to actually look at all the sports and to make a decision that you could find some similarity in um, the transition from actually going from a netball to athletics was the one um, that I was going to be the most easiest. But Chris said to me, look, just go out and just run. Let's just time trial you over 100 metres and let's see how you are. And I ran a B qualifier, Chris, without even any formal athletic training. I mean, to get to an A was another level, but it just showed you that, you know, I had athletic ability. Um, the funny thing is I never thought I was very good at athletics. You know, I competed in sports days. I love sports. I always did sports days, but I would come fourth or fifth, um, you know, because I was racing against able-bodied peers. And so I never thought my times were actually any good. If now I was a young athlete and now the systems that we've set up that in, you know, schools in Australia, when they do sports days, if a young athlete has cerebral palsy and they run hundred meters, we can actually tell them that their time, whether they would be any good at athletics or not. 
Um, so, you know, I missed that boat. In fact, I never thought I was good only because I was comparing myself um, to a wrong set of times. Um, so yeah, that's how I made the decision. And I, I loved everything about um, being a track athlete. I learned so much. And to be honest, it actually took me, I remember after 10 years of being a track athlete, uh, someone said, Katrina, now you actually look like you can really run. And I know you'd understand that, you know, like running or pushing, it can look easy, but it's so technical. And the amount of training that you spend, the drills that you do to actually know how to push or how to run, um, you know, it takes it takes a good 10 years of mastery. That's that I would imagine was the appealing part for you, though, because you were the one who worked the hardest. What about that mental shift that it took from hiding what you didn't want people to see to then embracing and publicizing it and, and promoting because you become an advocate for the sport. You become an advocate for the movement. Did, when did that happen? When did that realization come in your head? Yeah, that, that was the hard transition, Chris. Um, Cause all of a sudden I was, and, you know, I was a netballer and I was able-bodied netballer. I didn't have an accident. I didn't have, a, you know, an illness that got diagnosed in that moment. Um, it was like I, you know, I come out and I was exposed and no one kind of went, Katrina, these are the tools you're going to need <laughs> to deal with that. Like they gave, but I must say they gave me the support structure around and having a psychologist in my team since I was 14, I knew I really needed them in my team to help me with, with those skills as well. Um, it wasn't easy. I would say it, it actually took years. It took years of mental work um, and, you know, even just confidence of being a track athlete and being around the movement. But the amount of tools that I, I developed that are in my kit mentally, that took years. And the irony of it all is that having a psychologist in my team, um, particularly when you're a track athlete, I and in my event that I ended up specializing in was 400 meters that's a really hard event I don't know which one you found the most difficult as a track athlete um, but there's got to be one that you just went yeah that really pushes you mentally I don't know which one that was for you Chris but <laughs> 300 meters was pretty good that last 100 meters of the 400 was really hard yeah I've said to people in the past I was the best 300 meter runner. Like I wish there was a 300 meter event because that's an awesome, that is, I just love 300 meters, but yeah, like the 400 meters, it's a really tough event. Um, and so I had to develop a lot of tools mentally to actually, even, you know, when you talk to people about running a 400 meters, you need to start as fast as you can, but your mind doesn't want to start fast. Your mind just thinks, well, if I just start and then I gradually get faster, then I'll have enough energy to get home. But that's not the right way. You've got to start hard and get that momentum early because it's too much, you know, you know this, but a lot of people don't know this. So my mind didn't want to start hard. My mind wanted to just, you know, get into it and then get faster and faster. So I use psychologists a lot on my journey to really strengthen my mental performance. And, you know, when I said things to myself um, as an athlete, like, oh, you're not good enough, um, you know, you've won silver because my journey was I won gold in Atlanta. And then I actually, I, I didn't lose gold because I never had it. I won silver for eight years. So I won gold, but then I, I won silver for eight years at every competition. And it actually took me uh, in Athens to get back to a gold medal level again. So I won two gold in Atlanta and then silver, 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 silver. And then finally in Athens, I got back to that gold medal level again. So you can imagine my psychology throughout that period of, of winning silver for so long. And, and even to say to yourself, oh, Katrina, you're getting old, younger competitors, you're only good for silver if, if you're lucky, um, don't expect any, any gold. So I had to have a lot of work psychologically to make sure I had the right mental performance. And as I went along that journey, I realized when I said to myself, oh, you know, Katrina, you're not good enough. You've got cerebral palsy. Um, your right side doesn't work very well. They were different stories I was telling myself. But the tools I learned to, um, I suppose, quieten the negative thoughts as an athlete, I learned to quieten the negative thoughts as someone with a disability. Um, and the tools I learned to actually then realise that my thoughts aren't me, that I can actually choose to listen to them and turn them down and turn them up and then create thoughts that are actually real and fact <laughs> and say, yes, you've done the training. 
or, you know, yes, you've got amazing strengths because of having cerebral palsy. It's not a deficit. Like, look at all the great things you've learned from it. Um, that's how I really learned to love and accept myself. So I'm so grateful for sport. It wasn't hand-fed. I had to embrace psychology, and I really did, because I, I know a lot of athletes still don't see the importance of that. But as an athlete, I did. And the irony of all of that is the tools that I, you know, I used to win gold as an athlete were the exact tools that I needed to learn to love and accept my, you know, my difference. Mm, and yeah, what a gift, because if I didn't go down that path, no one would have offered me those skills. Like I know it's getting better now. We're offering mental health and wellbeing skills as a preventative tool. But when I grew up and for most people, you only see a psychologist when you've hit rock bottom, when you're burnt out, worn out, stressed out, grieving or suffering major trauma. And I didn't because sport buffered me to stay well. And then also introduced me to skills that helped me to, you know, to find and be and celebrate myself. It was about your performance, but you talk about the idea of the negative speak, the the your the thing that you were trying to hide suddenly is is front and center for everyone. But you also had gone from being an elite able-bodied athlete to moving into the Paralympics. Moving from, even though you changed sports, did you feel like you had an advantage having seen a different level of competition potentially than some of your competitors? That's a really good, good question, Chris. No one's ever asked me that one before. Um, and I never thought about that, actually, whether that was advantage or not. I, um, I really like that question. Was an advantage? I, I suppose the advantage was for me was I... I was just consistently working so hard to keep up with everybody else. And so maybe the advantage was that it taught me how to extend myself even more. But at the same time, when I got to the, my first Paralympic Games, I won gold, two gold and a silver in Atlanta. But I, I then won silver for eight years. The competition was so strong that and even in you know in Atlanta it was so strong and you you know this the the development the rapid development of times and you know even if I compete now as a, if I competed with the times in my class now they're extraordinary times like that the development the the competition in my class was was strong the times were excellent so um, even though I came in from an able-bodied athlete <laughs> I had to go to another level completely of course and embrace and learn a new sport um, so probably the gift that it gave me was it got me to a level early because I'd already been an able-bodied elite athlete. So I could make that transition early. And then once I got in, yes, I had success, but gosh, I then had to work incredibly hard to, to stay up with the best in the world. Um, so yeah, did I, yeah, look, I never really thought about that. I suppose because netball is a, a very different sport for me, the best thing about it, and I'm glad I didn't go from the same sport to the same sport. I couldn't have anyway. I think when you create it, when you make that change and such a significant change, it's so good to just start a fresh start and try something different. And so for me, I didn't really feel like I was bringing any advantage in because, you know, athletics was so new and Paralympics was so new to me. And um, I know you went to two games before that as well, Chris. Um, but, you know, even the Paralympic movement, if you compare where things were in Tokyo last year compared to the games that we were on, you know, people still didn't know what the Paralympics was back then. And, and to be honest, I didn't. I didn't even know about it until I found out I had a pathway. It's interesting that you talk about changing sports because effectively I did that as well, right? I mean, I, I went into skiing, which was the same sport. And in some ways, I felt like I had an advantage there in that I knew what I was looking for. I knew what it was supposed to feel like. And when I when I did it correctly, I knew that I had done it correctly. That was an advantage. But then one of the appeals for me in racing wheelchairs on the track was that I was learning something new all the time. In skiing, I knew what I was supposed to do. I had a really good idea of what I was supposed to do, but there's something that's really intoxicating about learning something. And then you, know, you come to a day of training and you have no idea that something amazing is going to happen and you learn something and go I had no idea this was this was great and you keep moving forward in a way that is is building that confidence is building your sense of self as an athlete what did it feel like to win that first gold medal 
Because I'd imagine this is the moment coming from all the change that you had as an 18-year-old. And then two years later, you're on the top of the podium and they're playing the national anthem. What did that feel like? Even now, to be honest, I look back and, you know, I'm, I'll be 46 this year. And I, some days I go, is, that, is this really been my life? Um, I don't know if you have, I don't know if you have those same feelings too, Chris. Um, is that really what happened? Like I still pinch myself of the moments that where there was a gold medal moment or an extraordinary moment, like, you know, also hanging out with you in London um, and being global ambassadors for the International Paralympic Committee. What, what wonderful roles we've been able to have. But that moment was extraordinary and um, it, it, it wasn't a, like it wasn't just a Paralympic moment for me. It, as an athlete, it's, it's everything you've done, whatever journey, whatever sports, it's all of those moments that come together. It was my netball coaches. It was my netball mates. It was my track and field coach. It was my family. And to, to, to be rewarded with that moment um, for, you know, for your country as well. Um, I'll never forget that. And I, I must say then when I won gold in Athens in, in 2004, which was, you know, eight years in between, that moment was even more extraordinary for me because, you know, the gold medal came early. And I know that happens for some athletes. You know, some athletes get gold early in their career. Gosh, it's hard to get back to it. And so to then earn it back after eight years, and I remember being in Athens, and I still have that feeling. I, I can't even describe it. And I, and I don't know if you've found words along your career, Chris, and I know when I was doing some uh, TV work in Tokyo at the 2020, 2021 games, and I got to interview athletes just as they'd finished their events. And I, I said, tell me how you're feeling. What does it feel like to tell me? Yeah, you've just won gold. What does it feel like? And, and they couldn't really find the words either. And I went, okay, it's not just me. Um, it's, I've really, I've actually found it really hard to match that feeling in any other aspect of my life. Because it all comes to one head in one moment. Yes. And even then that that doesn't happen. You know, even my race in Athens, something could have happened um, that might have not created that moment. Because I even, you know, I ran personal bests in Athens and a part of my stories in Sydney, I didn't PB. Um, and there's another story in that because I was trying to do everything and be everything and, um, and take care of everybody else and my performance suffered. And so all I wanted to do in Athens was PB and if that was going to be good enough for gold, then what else can it be? Um, and so for the PB and the gold to come in, yeah, I know that that's a, I know it's a rarity um, and the feeling I still feel now. The times where I've felt something similar or even deeper, Chris, was when I've been able to use my story and, and, and speak across, you know, Australia and the world and, and, I can tell you this story where I match the feeling is I, I shared my story and there was a teacher in the audience and in the break, the teacher came up to me and she said to me, oh, Katrina, it's so nice to see you. Uh, I'm a teacher of a year two class and I've got a year two, a young girl in year two who has cerebral palsy, very similar to you. And then she went to tell me that she's really struggling. You know, she was angry and cross and didn't like it. And she asked if I could write her a little note in the break and she'll give it to her, you know, the week after at school and hopefully that would help her. And I said, oh, of course I'll write a little note. In fact, I ended up writing a three-page letter and this, I think it was to my own year two self, but this teacher was amazing. On the weekend, she went and printed photos off me off the net and got this really big frame and put my letter in the frame. And I went a step further and I said, look, I would love to come into this class and present this to the young girl if we can get permission from the parents and um, and I can tell my story and bring my medals in and, and we did. And it was the most extraordinary moment and the note that I got from her parents afterwards and the feeling I got from the words that they said to me in that note, that feeling way surpasses gold, but not in a comparative, not in a competitive way, but just that, you know, when you know that the hard work that you've put in and those gold have gifted you something, then you can take that forward and pay it forward. That for me is where I found a feeling. Yeah not dissimilar right to make that impression to utilize that work to help somebody have an easier life or even an easier perspective on their life and on the journey because it, it's so easy to be so myopic in our view of ourselves and our lives 
and to open that girl's life up and say, look, this is what's possible. This is, this, this is something that you can do. How much, how much does that work? Because you speak to many different groups, right? So you're speaking to this young girl, you're speaking to corporate groups, you're speaking to school groups. You're also the mother of three. And I imagine some, I mean, it might be that it might be that the the three that you're the mother to might not be the, that might be the hardest audience that you talk to. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, they, they don't listen to me, but I strategically tell my friends to tell them that's the way it works, right? <laughs> but how do you, how do you shape that story? Because obviously you've, you've experienced a lot of things in your life and, and you've worked really hard. You've achieved on the highest level. Uh, but you are that person throughout your life, but you're not necessarily at your best on every single day. You know, you can tell the story of, of winning your gold medal of P being, which you also broke the Paralympic record as well, right, in Athens. So, so, so this, is, this is your best, but also the best that had been run at the Games, but sometimes that can be really hard, right? You, it's almost like you are compared to yourself in your very best moment. Mm, yes. Yeah. And how do you reconcile that? And what's the story that you tell? Because I'd imagine this is a big part of the story that you tell to your boys as well. How do you how do you reconcile that? And how do you how do you make sense of it in a way that they can that they can use it? Yeah, it's another great question, Chris. Um, you know, for me, I've been sharing my story um, and not deliberately. I remember coming home on the plane from Atlanta and my dad's Rotary Club had booked me in. That was my first engagement. <laughs> and I didn't realise it was going to end up being my career. I mean, I'm a physiotherapist by degree. I went and studied for four years and I still work one weekend a month to keep myself registered in case I ever have to work as one. But I've, you know, I've been speaking for 20, this will be my 23rd year of running a business and been speaking since 96. And I would say I'm booked out more than I ever have been. Um, um, and there's there's quite a few reasons around that. You know, when we look at diversity and inclusion, it's something that people have on the top of their agenda, which is so exciting because when you've been in this space for so long, um, it's it's nice that it's open. Well, particularly I will speak about it from Australian market. Um, um, also from a gender, gender point of view, um, you know, having women speakers and having women's view is, um, has been amazing as well. Um, but also my journey as, as a physiotherapist and someone that actually has learned a lot about high performance, I have trained and, and done a lot of extra training in delivering products around, um, you know, well-being, resilience, uh, mental health and, and, uh, and well-being, which after living through and we're still in the pandemic, right, um, these skills are uh, needed more than ever. So what I've specialised in over the last 20 years is actually the topics that um, the world is really embracing, which is so exciting. Um, so, I, you know, I talk generally when I speak to audiences about as an athlete, you're striving for a, a PB um, and that's, that is on the track. But when you learn what brings your best and yes, to get that point in moment like that, that's, that's a special moment. But for me, what I learned from sport is I have so many tools in my key. I understand what I need to actually bring my best most of the time. Um, and I talk about three areas that are key. I talk about the first area is being priority management. So you really need to know who you are what do you care about? What are your values? What are your priorities? Where are you spending your time? What story are you passing on? What legacy are you leaving? What are people saying about you? You know, when you retire, when you die, like what's really important to you? Um, so working out what your values and strengths are. And so that's that first important element. The second element I love to talk about is energy management. And when you think about as athletes, we, we became people that learned to master our energy. When you really think about it, like that point in time was you getting your energy 
mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, the best energy you could and generating it at a given time. So, you know, I talk to people about how do you manage your energy? I don't talk about doing sport, nutrition. I talk about people really learning about what brings their best energy. What do they need to do to re-energize? And then one of the hacks I learned from sport was actually scheduling meetings in with yourself. So, you know, as athletes, we would train once or twice a day and they were meetings. That were, they weren't called meetings, but you trained. And if someone said, like, Chris, if you said, Katrina, could we do this podcast on a Tuesday at four o'clock? I'd go, no, I'm training. And you go, of course you are. Let's find another time. Right. And people wouldn't step into my training time. It was not negotiable. I had a team of people waiting for me. Um, and I learned as an athlete that if you, I don't train anymore as an athlete, but I schedule meetings in with myself that are non-negotiable to make sure I do the things that take care of my energy. Because I know when I don't, I'm grumpy. I say stuff that I'm not proud of, and I'm not living in according to the, you know, the values I want to be known for. Um, so I like to talk about energy management. And then the final area I talk about to audiences is, is the most powerful one is about the mind and, you know, managing your mind. Um, and if I was, you know, I think the three elements are absolutely crucial. Um, probably I know now society is really tapping more into the mind, but I, you know, the tools that you learned from an athlete, being an athlete, knowing that, you know, physical performance is only one part of it. The mental performance is just as important. What a, what an amazing um, gift we were, we were taught. So I like to talk to people about what are they doing to manage your mind? What do you do on a daily basis to take care of your mind? And so they're the three things that I, you know, build upon. Um, and when I do speak to audiences, I think one of the reasons why I still speaking is because when you have a disability that's, um, I mean, people can see my disability when I can tell them what to look for. I'm very happy to demonstrate it. But generally, I can walk out in society and people won't see it, I suppose. They might see me limp or, but really, they're not going to notice it. Um, and the statistics in Australia, are 4.4 million people have a disability and 90% of disability in Australia is invisible or hidden. And it's probably similar in the US. Sure. Um, and I didn't know this for a long time. I thought it was the other way around. And so I've been very open with audiences talking about the fact that um, I didn't like parts of myself, that it generated shame, that I was broken, um, so I wanted to hide it. And in hiding, I was using my, you know, it's exhausting hiding. Uh, that's what I speak to audiences about. It's exhausting, it's tiring, and you're wasting your beautiful cognitive energy on hiding and for me it wasn't working and I and I wasn't you know I was exhausted at 18 I remember that moment of going why am I doing this for because this is hard work but it's also not helping anybody else so for me um you know learning to to find the tools to to not have to hide but that language when I speak to audiences they relate to that they might not have CP and I don't even care like it's not about having a physical disability it's about as human beings we have things that hold us back that we create, that we might not like about ourselves, that are different. Um, yet we're looking for a point of difference in society. And little did I know the thing that was my point of difference was the thing that was holding me back. And unleashing that, gosh, that unleashed so much more potential in me. So, so I suppose it's that story that resonates with people, Chris. Um, and, you know, and, and talking with my children, it's the same. We all have differences, some visible, some invisible. Um, and I know when we spent time together, I, I just found that we were comparing stories, right? Because we were the two ambassadors for the IPC and I was treated differently to you because your, your disability is visible and mine's invisible. And we had so many conversations around that um, and how, yeah, the different frustrations you can have compared to mine, yet we're human beings doing good stuff. We are. And it's interesting when you talk about the energy, because so much of this is about performing at our best, right? And this is ultimately allowing ourselves to perform at our best. And it's interesting to think about what we say to ourselves, because oftentimes, like, some of the things that we're looking at in, in the US, like, I kind of grew up with this mentality of like the tough like football coach like the american football coach who you know you could never be tough enough you had to run through a wall you know you were never quite good enough you were all, all this stuff you know and this was this was the objective I mean, and in a lot of ways that's exactly the way that we talk to ourselves and beat ourselves up and beat ourselves up and beat ourselves up and expect to be able to perform 
at the highest level. But you're talking about this idea, this idea of energy, this idea, and the mental part of it really comes into play within the energy part for me in terms of how can I create a situation that is going to allow me to perform? And, and yeah, sport is one part. Sport is where we spent a lot of time and where you end up learning a lot about yourself because that starting line, that starting gate, whatever it is, it, it all comes to a head right there. It's like, can you perform in this moment? But how often does that happen in our everyday lives? And whether it's something we're building to, whether it's a big performance, whether it's a, you know, a presentation, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a paper, whether it's a, a sales pitch, whether it is something, you know, or whether it's something that we're not prepared for that just happens within our day. And the mastery of ourselves is ultimately what we're looking for, but we don't necessarily we're not always guided in that learning. And so it's very cool that you are guiding, that you are guiding other people and that you're guiding, guiding your children as well, because I mean, this is like that little girl, right? You're like, Hey, you know what? You might not respect me all that much, you know, because I am your mom, but I've actually learned some stuff along the way. And believe it or not, your friends think I'm cool. Uh, That's right. Yeah. (laughs) I, I'm still, I, I still can't believe that we don't learn this in school. Like I, I would love to see there be a subject called being human from kindergarten right through to year 12. And it teaches us the, the stuff that I teach. So I te- teach a, a program now that's come out of the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute that's called the Be Well program. And I have a license to teach it. It's, you know, 15 hours of content. And it's all about understanding. It's a, like mainly a psychological program, but it's understanding your mind and how it works. And, and it's understanding, just as you were talking about then, that being self-critical is a, a useful skill, like to have some critical um, lens when, say, if we make a mistake or we you know, we mess up or we don't get the result we're looking for. So to be critical helps us to be able to find mistakes and to motivate us to do better next time. However, no one really talks about that there's a level of self-criticism that if it's pushed too much or overplayed, it becomes toxic and then your performance suffers. And I, I lived through this, you know, my self-criticism I'm not sure if it was overplayed because of having an invisible disability that I was trying to hide and I'm trying to show people that I'm capable. So even now I'm unlearning this. Like if I make a mistake now, I can be still so harsh on myself and I have the tools in my kit. It takes a long time to unlearn it. And I've said to people in the past. And harsher than you'd ever be to anybody else, right? No. Well, I don't need anyone to sabotage me because I can do such a good job of it myself. Right. But you wouldn't be you wouldn't be that harsh to someone else as you are to yourself. Right, exactly. Because people can't hear it. Right. And so um, so the tools, you know, with the antidote to that or the, the skill that can help with that is self-compassion. And so, you know, when you do make a mistake, how can you be compassionate to yourself and kind to yourself? And how do you firstly notice it? Because if you don't notice it, which is where mindfulness comes in, you don't even notice that you're doing it. And then how can you realize that you're human like everybody else? I mean, this is the great work of Professor Kristen Neff, who talks about compassion and self-compassion. But realizing that we're all humans and we all make mistakes is sometimes we think it's just us. And I know I feel like that. And then the other side of it is to be kind to yourself and to go, would I talk to my son like this? Would I talk to, you know, Chris, if you called me and said you'd made the missed mistake, would I say the stuff that I would say to myself to you? No, you'd use a really supportive and kind language. So, you know, I, I teach this stuff and I'm also a work in progress. Like when I teach this stuff, I, by all means, um, my examples are recent and current and and it's about being human. I, we don't ever get, I don't think we ever get to or striving to a place to have none of this. Um, it's actually knowing that we, you know, if if we come to a place where we've made a mistake and we're stuck and we're not performing and it's helping us to, um, you know, to get the same result over and over again that's not helpful, then that's time where I don't know, I don't know who, where this one comes from, but I love it, but doing the research, but doing the me-search. I just think that's a great term. And I think as athletes, we learn to do the me search, right? (laughs) It's all about going, okay, let's do the research on me. Why am I getting the same result that I don't like? And can I do things differently? So, you know, the part of the mastery is, is having so many different tools in your kit 
that you can pull on at different times because even today I've never been um, this age today and I've never experienced this day today in my life. And I'm probably going to make mistakes coming up this week. Um, and that's okay because I've never been here before. But the more tools I've got and the more people I've got um, around me that can help um, is the, the key. And, and as athletes, that's what we did, right? We we had a team of people that had tools that could add to our kit and, and we learned to to bring it all together to get, you know, to get those great moments. How about continuing to stretch yourself? Obviously, you had a great athletic career. Uh, you're, you're a mom, which which I would imagine has stretched you more than your athletic career has has stretched you. But then you've been to base camp at Everest twice. So what's that? Seventeen thousand five hundred feet, I think, at, at Everest base. Oh, yeah. I still I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. speaking in feet as far as meters. <laughs> Yeah, you, you would be right, I'm sure. Yeah, it's a, about 5,300. In fact, last late last year in October, I so I go to Nepal every year. Um, I'll be back there in May. I run leadership programs there and I love it. So it's like my second home and my, my second work home. And I have sisters and brothers from different mothers and fathers there. Um, and we were there in October and uh, another friend of ours happened to be there and she was going back to do some mountain climbing. So we decided to to catch a helicopter as you can, or we actually paid for a helicopter and five of us went to drop her off so she could start her walking. Um, but the helicopter helicopter took us to 5,700 metres and we had a cup of tea. So I'm sorry about the feet side of it, but um, that's even above Everest Base Camp. And that's that's my world record. I um 5,700 metres is my own personal record of uh, getting to some good altitude. Um, but, yeah, I, I noticed this about myself. I, I wonder whether you have the same. I, I'm sure you do too, Chris, because when you've been an athlete and you've, you know, you've always had a goal and a, and a significant challenge, that it's a part of my DNA and it's a part of my value set. So I see it under my um, uh, value of excellence and adventure and I do it through physical, like I don't want to run anymore, like I can jog, but I don't want to ever want to sprint. I'm not so keen to do sport, but I, if I can climb a mountain or set myself something hard, I think that's really important, even just for our own mental health and well-being, is to, to find something hard to do and to, you know, to get out of our comfort zone and stretch ourselves and do the preparation. So there's always something on, you know, for me, we are going to do a third Everest Space Camp that's coming up. Um, but I also do it through my work. So, um, you know, I run large events and conferences um, and I did my sixth one last year. And that for me, bringing three or 400 people together on a particular day and having um, a whole bunch of speakers come in is just like competing for me. It's it's all the preparation. It's pulling it together. It's putting a day where everyone comes to see your work and then you hope, you know, if it goes well, it's a little bit like, okay, you know, we've won a gold medal if you want to, you gotta, I don't use that language, but I can see I'm repeating, I repeat those um, behaviours in different aspects of my life. Uh, so I don't want to be an athlete anymore, but I've, what I loved about being an athlete was that roller coaster of preparation and and now I don't just do it for myself I do it for a collective and bring people together so other people can benefit from it but that's how I keep um keep myself stretched um and keep yeah it's uh it's it's good fun sometimes I go why am I why am I doing this for <laughs> I can make life a little bit more simple but um I think I'd be very bored without a stretch what do you say to yourself to keep going when things get difficult and i'd imagine because we're talking about climbing a mountain so there's the there's the physical part of it but you're bringing all of these people together there's the organizational part there's the there's a self-reflection part the self-worth part what do you say to yourself what's your story that keeps you moving forward when you reach that difficult point I would say that it's for me, whenever I've done these projects, it actually hasn't been specifically for me. It's not Katrina going there on my own. Um, the two Everest base camps I've done to date, we raised a, a quite a sum of money for someone else and I brought people together. Not that I led them, but I was the the key guide to bring those projects together. So it's it's the thing that keeps me going is 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 having a goal that's beyond self and it's a collective goal. And I do that in my work. I'm really good at collaborating. I love bringing people together. I love creating community. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, so for me, when the times do get tough, because they do get tough, 
I remember last year when things, you know, didn't go as planned. And in that moment, for me, not not things going wrong, but just things being different. And I think, gosh, over the last three years anyway, we've had to learn learn something incredibly special, which if you haven't got it as a skill, you definitely need it. And it's called psychological flexibility. You need to be able to not be rigid. You need to you need to be able to notice your thoughts and you need to be able to challenge your thoughts and you need to be able to work out what's important, like what are your values and commit to action um, related to those values. But also know that when things don't go to plan, your thoughts are probably going to tell you to turn around and run away or to that thing, you know, it's when you have some painful feelings innately, you want to run away to where the relief is, but then you run away from the stuff that's really good. So psychological flexibility is knowing that you're moving towards what's important to you, your values with committed action. And you also know that there's going to be moments that aren't going to go to plan and you're going to have painful thoughts and you're going to have painful experiences and you're going to probably say things to yourself that aren't kind. That's when you need to have your other tools to know when to bring them in so you keep moving forward to what's important. So one of the words I said to myself at my conference last year um, when one thing at the beginning, someone didn't turn up that we thought were going to turn up and, and things just took a little bit longer. And the word that just came to me was my word today is flexibility and just go with it. And it was such a, it was amazing. Like that moment was instead of getting stressed about it, not going to this certain plan, well, maybe this was the plan. And if I can be guided by flexibility today, it'll work out. So, yeah. And some of that is really very similar to being an athlete too, that oftentimes when things build and build and build to one really important moment, it's easy. I've, I don't know about you, but I've found getting to that starting line, getting to that starting gate, there is a moment where I go, what am I doing here? It happened more with marathons than than anything else, you know, that I knew that I was going to, hurt for an hour and a half, two hours or whatever it was, you know, and, and I was never a great marathoner. So hour and a half was never even really, I, I never even went that. Well, I guess I did a couple of times, but that was a different race. But anyway, it was, those are, those are those moments when you get to that moment and go, what am I doing here? And some of it's remembering that all of this work has brought you to this moment and you never feel completely prepared. And if you did feel completely prepared, you were probably over-prepared because there's a bit of that excitement of not knowing whether you're ready or not and being flexible both in body and in mind and you know emotionally in your soul or whatever it is. So there's so many different parts of that. For you, the idea, it's interesting because you said the idea is, is about something bigger. And that's something that I ended up sharing with regard to Kilimanjaro. I felt like I rode on the power of the people, you know, 1.2 billion people in the world with physical disabilities. You know, I mean, it's it's 15% of the population, right? It's a huge part. But as you said, it's an invisible part of the population. You know, 90, 90% aren't visible, but it's also invisible because we're taught not to stare, I believe, as well. And so can we as somebody who's been in the limelight a little bit, can we can we take that moment and be able to turn the light to say, you know, let, let's see a whole lot of other people. Do you have to remember that? You know, is it something that's conscious? Is it something that's subconscious? Is that that it is something that's bigger than me? That this is the story that I tell myself? Is it conscious or subconscious for you? I think it's a bit of both, actually, because even the way I look at how I work, it is happening subconsciously now. When I maybe I work with some new people, and um, and maybe they don't have this in that in their it's not a part of their skill. They're still in their own journey, and I go, oh, okay, this is something that I've really embedded, and this is how I do things. And then when I meet people that have it in their subconscious as well, it's like, wow, this is so incredibly powerful. That when people get this and it's in theirs as well, you can just elevate each other and do some just incredible work together. Um, so for me, the the only the bit probably that comes into my conscious and the bit that I still um, as I mentioned before, unlearning is 
is my own presence in that. And, you know, when I make a mistake or, um, you know, something doesn't go planned for me in it, um, is there's that conscious of, of my effort and managing my own self in it um, with that collective good. So, um, but yeah, I, I think I've always been wired this way. Even when I look back to my young self, the way I could speak to people, the way I loved working with people, the way I could, even in when I was a young netballer, I was known as the encourager. Like my title was the one that could really bring the best out in people for that collective good as a team. So, um, yeah, it's something within me that I really enjoyed. And then the steps I've taken, because just because we've been Paralympians doesn't mean we have to advocate either, does it? Like, and it doesn't mean that, like, you, there's a lot of people that don't, and, and that's not wrong either. It's your skill set, meeting your profession as well, and your success that you then take it to another level. Um, and so I, for me, even that, what you're talking about, the Paralympic movement, um, even I feel like with my own um, want to do it and my skill set that the Paralympics is such an amazing tool that uh, like allows people to see disability and to say, watch us. Like I just heard you before say, you know, for a long time, I know when I grew up, you weren't to look at people and stare at people. And it's probably still young kids are probably being still taught that right now, but we're saying, Hey, we are different. We have differing abilities. Um, we're amazing athletes. We're trained. Come and watch us. I don't know what's comparable to what else is there around the world that does that. I mean, in some ways, it's sport in general, right? I mean, that's it's one of the. I mean, we're talking about Paralympic sport, but it's sport in general too, because you have people who are small, people who are who are tall. You have people who are who are super fast. You have people who with great endurance. You have people who who utilize a skill that you hadn't imagined that ends up being the thing that changes the way a particular game is played or the way that people look at it. That to me, I, I feel like, like watching the Olympics, watching Paralympics, watching whatever, like for me sitting on the couch, I feel like we won when somebody wins. I didn't do anything. I was sitting there on the couch, but it, but it shows us what we as human beings can do. And, and I, that to me is is the coolest part, and and yeah, where where the differences are can be seen as deficiencies, but in another light, they can be seen as as, as a superpower. Absolutely, and and isn't that? I mean, that's what I that's the biggest gift that when I look at my own journey now and to look back over when I really try and pull apart. Um, and step away from the medicalization of disability and go, people will hear that I've got cerebral palsy and then they'll, you know, I know our minds are programmed to look for negative and for deficits and weaknesses so much easier than we are to look for strengths. So unless you work at it and if you let your mind just do its thing on autopilot, it's probably what it will do, right? And so looking at my cerebral palsy and going, yeah, these are the things that I can't do and and However, if I look at what I've learned because of having cerebral palsy, you know, I'm such like I can work so hard, like the energy that I have around a lot of people. I've got the most energy of most people I know, to be honest. Um, I've learned how to really sustain and, and work hard. Um, I am an amazing problem solver. The way I have to do things and find the way that I have had to do things. I've always had to problem solve, um, even, you know, for myself. Um, I really take care of myself. And for, all, for a long time, I thought that was because I was an athlete. But the more I've actually met other people with, diff, with other disabilities, um, I've realised that, oh, actually, that is a strength of your disability because you learn so much about yourself that you know that you need a certain amount of sleep, you need to do X and Y, Z to really perform at your best. And one of the biggest gifts I've learned because of cerebral palsy is I've learned to see beauty and difference in other people that others wouldn't see because I've learned to find my own because of cerebral palsy, not despite it. And imagine that if the world learned to come from a strength-based approach with anyone and everyone. Um, yes, we can. I know the research shows that if we're trying to improve performance, finding where weaknesses are 
and helping people to grow on them, you can improve performance. And the research also shows that if you find where people's strengths are and grow them, you can um, improve performance just as much. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's a wonderful place to be. And I, I do, when I, I share my story with people on stage, I, I openly talk about this and I say, when I now meet someone with a difference, I've learned to train my brain not to go, what haven't they got? Or what are they deficit, you know, what are their deficits? What don't they do well? I've actually trained my brain to go, I wonder what they've developed because of their difference. And how can I learn from that? Yeah. Yeah. This is it, it's so cool, Katrina, to, to see the ongoing journey of learning that's that's come out of a variety of different some 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 that are are given to you, some that you've chosen, some that you continue to choose, but then also that you take what you've learned and share that with other people. Because as you said, there is a difference. There's a difference within all of us. But the thing is, what do we have to learn from those people? And what do they have to learn from us? And the objective is that we want to continue to get better, right? We want to continue to grow and this is this is the easiest path. So I'm so excited that one that you're doing what you're doing, and two that you're willing to share it with us. So thank you so much for joining us and taking time out of your morning in Australia since it's since it's now dark here. <laughs> oh, it's always a pleasure to chat with you, Chris. And I mean, these conversations I, I love having, and I know I'll go away from feeling nourished and fulfilled to, to have these sort of conversations. And I'm really glad that you're creating this platform to be able to share these conversations as well. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. It's all, as you said, it is always a pleasure. And I look forward to the next time that we get to meet in person. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation. The greatest gift you can that you can give us is to tell your friends. Tell your friends, please subscribe, please like us, please follow us. We will continue to bring you great content, but uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. So thank you very much. And thank you, Katrina, and enjoy summertime. <laughs>